0: Welcome to An Original Series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your
1: co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is my friend and co-host Adam. Hey, Patch, before we start, I just want to let everyone know that they may hear some raindrops hitting the window in my office as we record because it's raining here in New York. It's not nuclear rain, so that's... I was going to say, is it, it fallout? Because that'd yeah. be terrible. I hope say. it isn't. <laughs> I might start vomiting during this Please recording, don't do but... <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: gosh. I'll throw some vomit sounds in post if yeah. I need to. <laughs>
1: Hopefully, it won't be distracting uh, as we record, but uh, it'll just set the mood. It's, it's late night in New York City as the rain pitter-patters on my window.
0: Nice. Yeah. There you go. Meanwhile, in Arkansas, it's not doing any of that, so that doesn't set the tone. <laughs> so you'll just have to
1: do it for both of us. No tornadic activity, as they say. No tornadic activity weather. in November. Yeah. Usually, <laughs> it's October, September, October.
0: Yeah. That we you know, late summer, early fall that we get them, but right. now, Well, if you've downloaded this episode, you know that we are talking about the HBO miniseries Chernobyl. This is, I believe, our first pure series that neither of us have seen at all. We've seen yes. a few episodes of What If? I think that was you. Of course, I've seen Halt and Catch Fire. You've seen Stranger Things. We've both seen Ted Lasso. So this is kind of different on a couple of fronts, one that we're going in pretty much blind, and two, that this is a miniseries. And so if listeners, you've gotten used to listening to our episodes, we go through it kind of a scene-by-scene breakdown. For this particular miniseries, we thought that a different approach would be better to kind of look at each episode as sort of a mini-movie, looking at themes and characters and that kind of stuff, mainly because it is a miniseries. It's not going on for 15 episodes. Also, it's really more of a docudrama in that it actually explores real events that happened. So this will be sort of experimental for us and hopefully the conversation will keep you here. I know that I'm excited about talking about this particular episode. So I wanted to open up by asking you, Adam, what did you think?
1: I really enjoyed it. Never saw it. I only saw the trailer. So beyond the imagery in the trailer that I saw, I knew very little about the show and what it was going to be like so much happened in the very first episode. I wasn't sure. I, I kind of thought, oh, they're going to probably start with some, uh, an episode of just character development, where we're going to get to know the key players in the weeks or months leading up to the disaster. But no, we get thrown right into, almost, almost right into the events of that evening uh, within the first like 10 minutes, I think. There's a, there's a short bookend scene, I'm guessing, in the beginning where we see a major character committing suicide but then it kind of i wouldn't say it's a flashback but it says i think it says two years and one day earlier and then we get right into the events which uh yeah it's kind of like let's just go there because that's what the show's about yeah i'm assuming it's more about the aftermath than it is the events that led up to it although it's very possible having not seen it that there will be flashbacks that take us back to the events that led to what actually happened
0: do you remember this growing up as a kid? Do you remember the events of Chernobyl?
1: Yeah, I was I was about eight when this happened. And I remember hearing about it. I remember it being on the news. My parents would be you know, watching the nighttime news, and this was on the news. I didn't fully understand what it meant or the sort of implications of it at that age. I knew it was bad. I knew it was a tragedy. Uh, but I think I also remember... Very vividly, when the Space shuttle Challenger exploded, I was homesick that day. This was a, a little earlier. I was homesick watching the prices right as you do when you're a kid at home. nothing else to do. And I remember you know the news cutting in live that this tragic event occurred, and they were showing the footage, and they were showing the people on the ground crying, and just it, it, like that, I think, affected me so much more at, at that young age than. Chernobyl did because I couldn't see what was happening in Chernobyl. I at least I don't recall any images because it was in the Soviet Union, you know, they weren't showing much of what was going on at least that I can recall. But I remember seeing vividly these images of the Space Shuttle Challenger, you know, taking off and then exploding and like it felt more real to me. It felt more like, oh, it's horrible. This is so tragic. So as a kid, I didn't really fully grasp, I think the magnitude of Chernobyl. But obviously, as I got older, I, I learned more about it in history and became aware of it. It's funny too, because I grew up in Pennsylvania and about five, six years before Chernobyl was the Three Mile Island disaster in Pennsylvania, which was not far from where I grew up. It was basically not nearly as bad as Chernobyl, which was like an explosion. But this was like a near-nuclear power plant meltdown in 1979. And it was the first event that really raised concerns, in the U.S. at least, about nuclear power plant safety. So that was always there. That was kind of always around, like on the minds of people in my part of the state. But I think because, again, Chernobyl was on the other side of the world, it felt kind of like right now we're always seeing this footage of, The war in Ukraine, but it still feels very distant. You know, it feels like, oh, it's not in our backyard. It's not happening to us right here. So yes, we can feel horrible about the images that we're seeing, but it just still feels like it's a world away.
0: Yeah, I had similar approaches to the events of Chernobyl. I actually don't remember it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. My first introduction to what happened was going down a YouTube rabbit hole of places you'd want to visit that are abandoned. Like I have this really great, I say great, I have this really (laughs) interesting fascination with abandoned places. Like when the Olympics leave town, how does Sochi, Russia look now? And seeing footage of these abandoned amusement parks, like Six Flags, New Orleans, there's a great documentary called Close for Storm. It's a documentary about the closing of Six Flags and the impact that it had on the people there in New Orleans. After uh, Hurricane Katrina, I think it was. But Chernobyl was introduced to me where I really remember it was in the aftermath, like the years and years and years later about this abandoned city of uh, Pripyat, I think is what it's called. It's the city of Pripyat. I don't remember. I,
1: yeah, you're your own. Yes, it's as called. good as mine. Yeah. I am not gonna be good with all the names, by the way. I'll probably end up saying yeah. the actors' names <laughs> because all okay. these character names are they all sound alike to me. I and I well I there's know a that's lot of bad, obs but. and yeah, obs yeah. and
0: so listeners, we want to do our best to remember the names, and so we've gotten them written yeah. down. So apologies ahead of time if we don't catch them or don't say them right. We'll probably i I'll refer to them if I need to by their occupation.
1: And we might get better as we go along. You know, (laughs) so by the time we (laughs) get to the fifth
0: episode, it'll be like, yeah, we know him now, now that it's over. But I remember just, I remember the fascination of wanting to visit the place Mm. and thinking about it in terms of it being like you, like an international story that was never connected to me. I was the same way about the challenger where I don't specifically remember where I was when I heard about the challenger, but I do remember it happening because it affected a teacher and I was in elementary school and I was like, wow, that's crazy. My first real impactful, like, wow moment was the Waco, the David mm. Koresh and Waco, the um, O.J. Simpson verdict. I remember where I was when that, yep. when that happened. And I remember when 9-11, when the two towers were hit. Yeah. So those are, those are more vivid for me. And I think it's because of the age that I was. I mean, you and I are the same age, but I yep. didn't have that kind of connection to Chernobyl like you just like you didn't because of those same reasons that it was such an international thing. And as we talked about the war in Ukraine, ironically being where, where right. Chernobyl yeah. is, there's a sense of nationalism that I think shields us from right. what happens around the world, even in the this day and age where we have such instant news and we can be connected and put our flags in our Twitter bios and things like that. There's a sense of disconnect. And I think that's okay. I think it's okay. I think it's very healthy to not be connected to every little thing I have no problem being a little bit ethnocentric when it comes, or nationalistic, I guess you could say, in caring more about the things that are happening at home than things that are abroad, because we just don't have the capacity to do that. I don't have the physical capacity to care about everything that's happening, even when it comes to national stuff. If there's a school shooting happening up in Massachusetts, I'm not going to care about that nearly as much as one that's happening in Texas or South Arkansas, because I'm not connected to it physically. And so The first episode really allowed me to connect with this boots on the ground event and the people that were connected to it, particularly the ones inside the plant, the officials that were trying to contain it, the citizens Mm -hmm. of Pripyat. And I think that the first episode had this great way of bringing all that to me as a way to begin to have empathy. And it's really interesting because as we discuss this series, we have to be able to find that really delicate balance between what it is, which is historical fact and what we're watching, which is a narrative. So I'm going to go ahead and plug a podcast. That's not ours. <laughs> it's, I think it's just called the Chernobyl podcast. It's on NPR. You can search for it on any of your podcatchers, but it's essentially an episode by episode conversation with the writer slash creator of the show. And in each episode, he talks about the episode itself, Peter Sagal's the, uh, the host. He does the, uh, he hosts, I think, wait, wait, don't tell me. He's a great, great voice, great radio voice, but it's a really great conversation about sort of the intricacies of the show, why he chose to do certain things. And so I don't want to go too deep into that, it would, of course, inspire some of the thoughts that I have, but I encourage you to go if you're watching the series or if you want to rewatch it, check out that companion podcast because it goes into a lot more detail about the why and the, the choosing of certain things and how they affect the overall narrative. And one of the things he talks about is how you balance fact from fiction and how you take a narrative that is entertaining at its core. That's what movies and television shows do for us, but also show that respect to the people, the actual people that you're characterizing. And so we will find that a lot of the dialogue that he uses comes from actual conversations, actual things. Some of it's a little bit more sensationalized, but at least in this first episode he doesn't give a hint that he's done way more than what the story is actually telling. So I can take confidence in knowing that what I'm seeing is probably about 80 to 90% historically accurate, so I can enjoy the story as it's playing out. And that was a that was a good kind of security blanket for me. So I'm not going, dude, that character was amazing or that character said that. I can't believe it. Where,
1: yeah, he really did. So there's a, I I like that. I like that approach. I saw you had messaged me and and told me about this companion podcast and I, I looked it up and then I just sort of decided at the last minute, I almost listened to listen to it. I decided, well, you know what, for this first episode, I want to kind of go in with just my own thoughts and then maybe I'll listen to that one after we record and kind of do that in advance of, the second episode listen to theirs before the second episode but you know kind of always right. be want always record our episode before i listen to theirs so i don't i don't necessarily want to and if you if you want to share any really cool things that that's great but i didn't want to find myself regurgitating <laughs> the things that they discuss since uh, i obviously have my own thoughts and opinions that uh, i took away from my first time viewing of this and Absolutely. Uh, I yeah, I agree. It's always great when a show can do that, can add content that sort of supports it's one of the reasons why I still like to collect, at least for my favorite films, I like to collect physical media because I still enjoy if a Blu-ray special edition of a classic film comes out, it has a whole extra disc with behind the scenes footage and interviews and deleted scenes. And I love that. I love being able to dig deep into a film I love and just sort of really appreciate the movie on a whole nother level. So this is a, a great way to do that for a new show. Just create a podcast and uh, offer it up for more information for people that want to do it.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the plot and the characters and the setting a little bit. So obviously this p- takes place in Russia or for, it's formerly Russia. Well, it's currently the Ukraine. So this is when the, uh, the height of the, um, the Cold War or the right. thick of the Cold Soviet War is Union. happening. Yeah. Soviet Union, yes. USSR. I really liked how this episode captures that feel of 1980s Russia that doesn't feel stereotypical. It doesn't feel like hokey. It really does kind of put you in a sense of very much cold and very dark. Of course, the first episode takes place at the time of the explosion, as you mentioned. And at night. And and at (laughs) night. But I like the fact that there's a subtlety to it, that it feels like I'm watching a documentary I'm not getting the Boris and Natasha kind of <laughs> characters here. I'm not getting right. the big hats, but it's not without some of those not tropes, but those things that Americans would be used to, like when you hear folks calling each other comrade that's just something that they do so right. I liked seeing that and i I was reminded as i was watching this episode that apparently you and i can't get out of the 80s between stranger things halt and catch fire and now this i guess we have to intentionally push to a different decade in order to not become the aos 80s podcast
1: (laughs) and not just this podcast when we do when i've appeared On more than one occasion on the other podcast that you co-host, Feel and Film, we almost always cover a film set or made in the 80s. So there's something about that decade that we are drawn to somehow. This was not intentional, though. I don't think we intended, as we planned AOS, to just cover shows set in the 80s. But they're all newer shows. They just happened to take place in the 80s. (laughs) Right. uh, But one thing to add to what you just said about sort of the way it's shot, the way it looks, it's very authentic. And I think what I appreciated about it is it, does, it doesn't have the polish of a... This was a, a series that came out in 2019 originally. It doesn't look as beautiful and 4K and high resolution as a lot of shows are right now and or in 2019. It kind of feels like... It was filmed in the 80s mm-hmm. and made to look like a little less perfect, a little more gritty, a little more like it was made and shot. Like you said, almost like documenting the events as opposed to a highly staged production. So that's something I took away as as well, is that it didn't feel quite as polished and, and pristine yeah. uh, as most shows do today.
0: Yeah. What did you think about the lack of Russian accents in this episode?
1: So, you know what? It's a funny thing because there's sort of this trope, in Hollywood at least, and I know this is a joint production, I believe, between uh, HBO and I think Sky TV in England, but there's this trope that whenever you have a foreign or international event, like historical drama, whether it's something in the Middle East or something in Africa, it doesn't matter. Like Instead of hiring people from those countries, they just hire a bunch of British actors to make it sound foreign or international, but they're still speaking English, obviously, so American audiences can understand what they're saying without subtitles. So I think it's clearly a conscious choice. They probably could have gone for the ultra-authentic route where they hired all actors from this region had it all been in the original Russian, you know, <laughs> and it all subtitled. But then it would have been probably a show that was made in Russia by Russian filmmakers. And who's, who's to say, maybe that will happen one day, but this uh, clearly is targeting an English-speaking audience. So I get it. They're making it accessible. That's the key.
0: Accessibility, I think, is huge. Yeah. You have to think about your audience. You have to think about where you're distributing this. And what I think watching this is that those accents become, if they were authentic, if you had subtitles, for a lot of people... I, think, I don't think people are lazy and they don't want to read. But I think that being able to watch the series, watch this particular episode, and I'm assuming the next four, you wanted to be able to not let that be a distraction. Right. And what I found is that it wasn't. I didn't think, oh my gosh, these guys don't have Russian accents. I'm just hearing them talk. Because the fact is, the way that the show starts with the explosion and the way that the explosion happens, which I think is great, it's not just like, boom, boom. It's simply just a, oh, a light and then a, and then a rattle. I'm more interested in the event. I'm more interested in how people are handling it less than are they speaking authentically. And here's the thing. You'd have to go full-on Russian language. You couldn't do a Russian trying to speak with English words because that wouldn't right. happen. If you're in the city, if you're in Pripyat, you're going to speak Russian. You're not going to speak English with a Russian accent. And so I think that was a bold choice to just say, let's not do that. Let's just hire actors to act, not to try to mimic an accent in English because then, and this is a little giveaway. I'm I'm going to try not to go back to the podcast, uh, the other podcast, (laughs) and I'm going to do what you do for the future episodes. I'm going to watch and then discuss, and then listen. (laughs) So I'm not, because I I really do want people to go to that one. It's a lot more informative on the technical side. But one of the things he says is that when they were going through auditions, they were trying to do the accents, and the actors would act the accents. They wouldn't act the part. And so he said, let's just scrap that. Let's hire actors, or let's bring in actors that will play the part of the people and not worry about this. And obviously, it was a huge success. And something that you really don't think about right when you get into it. Ten minutes in, I'd forgotten, oh yeah, we're in Pripyat, we're not in New York, we're not in Boston, we're not in right. It's just I almost think of it like the what was it, the was it
1: Valkyrie that Tom Cruise was in? Uh yeah. Yeah, the World War II film. Yeah.
0: Right. So he starts out speaking German or some whatever the language was, and it slowly yeah, he played, bleeds uh, into English. Yeah. Yeah. And so that filmmaking technique allowed me to go, okay, so I'm basically in the mind right. of this person. And that's the other thing that that he was saying is that we are hearing the thoughts and words of what they were saying to each other. They're not trying to translate English and Russian when they're trying to speak to each other about what's going on at Chernobyl. They're just talking to each other. So right. we don't need that distraction either as an audience. And I think that was a really, really great move to sort of take away that potential distraction, and it allowed us to get right into the story as a whole.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think, as you are alluding to, they're focusing on the human drama and not on these kind of nitpicky details. That at the end of the day, what people are going to walk away from this show with, or one would hope, is A, a history lesson, but also an emotional experience, that they're going to take away that emotion. And emotion, it doesn't have a language or an accent. You should feel something after watching it, regardless of how the actors sound or or what language they're speaking. And so I think even in this first episode, they've hit it out of the park, and it was a great choice. But I am reminded of that Tom Cruise film, but I'm also thinking of The Hunt for Red October, where Sean Mm -hmm. Connery speaks Russian on the submarine for like the first five minutes, and then the camera kind of zooms in on him and when it pulls out again he's speaking well english but same in a scottish thing. accent <laughs> you know yeah same so kind of thing, but right. it's like it's okay because now we know that yes he is russian but we're focusing on his performance and his emotional delivery of the words that have been written and not on just oh is he doing a good russian accent or is he doing a good job at saying the words in russian correctly for somebody that speaks it fluently it shouldn't matter if it's a good film, and I think that film is, you will care about the events that are are taking place and the humanity of those characters.
0: Well, not just the humanity of the characters, but also the setting itself, because there are certain places like the plant, like the bridge, like the city itself that needed to reflect an authenticity of what it was like in that time period in 1986 and I thought that it looked really, really authentic, as you mentioned. So the whole setup, I believe that we're hanging out in Pripyat for five episodes. I don't know what the duration is going to be in terms of the time frame. It may be just one day, maybe two weeks, right. maybe three years. But I know that this episode sets up a real authentic flavor of this is Pripyat. This isn't a fake place, even though it wasn't actually filmed there. Obviously, you couldn't because it doesn't look like that now. Right. But also because it's difficult to get there. Chernobyl is still radioactive. I believe as of 2022, there are guided tours in certain parts, but there's still quite a bit that you can't go towards. But everything's yeah. just basically frozen in time. And yeah. so to be able to film out
1: there, even if you could get there, wouldn't make sense. It's still a, um, a destroyed place. So it, so much time would have to be spent, you know, making it ready to film that I just don't, I wouldn't want to be on that, construction crew (laughs) spending eight weeks building sets on location. No, that's probably not the best choice, but
0: yeah. So the characters that we get introduced to, there's a handful. There's a lot that's going on. I wrote down probably about half a dozen that stood out to me because they all seem to have some kind of role to play in this first episode. Legasov is the first one we get introduced to. And this is where we do that sort of Quentin Tarantino where we see the quote end and then we go back. Right. He commits suicide historically two years to the day of the events of Chernobyl. He, I believe, was on asked to be on the committee to sort of decontaminate or kind of regulate the whole kind of bring control to everything that was going on. And we don't get much. We get... A little bit of him at the beginning with the suicide right. roll back. He's
1: And we get a phone call with him at the very end. That's about it.
0: And so he kind of bookends the episode. We're introduced to Dietlov, who is the, I guess, the head engineer at the plant. And he's the one that leaves to go report to, um, to the director and to, I guess, the safety guy about what's happened. Then we get uh, Vasily. He's the fireman. I think he's the husband of the wife who has to go to the plant because there was a reported roof fire. By the way, the dialogue—speaking of Russian accents—the stuff in Russian that recording was the actual recording that was played. So there, there's a level of authenticity there. It's actual. It's like the the nine-one-one
1: tapes, you know, that you hear on the news sometimes. Uh, Yeah, very. And then
0: you have um, Fermin, who is the—I would call him like the safety director. He's the one that put the safety protocols in place, but he's not the one that works at the plant. And then finally, there's Bryukhanov, who is the director. And he's the one that I refer to whose plant is on fire. That's how he says, my plant is on fire. He's writing <laughs> right. stuff down. Kind of reminds me a little bit of like a Russian Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> and a little bit, yeah. So we have a handful of these characters. Obviously, we're going to get introduced to more, but this is kind of the core no pun intended, uh, group of characters that we spend time with throughout the episode. And they all have something to bring to the table. I was particularly kind of attached to dietlove at Love, who has this real sense of duplicitous control and denial about what's going yeah. on from the, from the jump. He seems to be in control. He's telling his crew, do this, do that, do this, do that. And then when he starts getting reports back, he's saying, no, you're wrong. That's not, the core did not explode. That's impossible. In fact, I think at one point he said the core can't explode. It's physically impossible. Even though we know as many years later that that's what happened. Right. That's an interesting perspective to have in that. Does he really believe that or does he know that it's possible? And he's really just trying to deny that. And I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on him and other characters that I've mentioned and anything that stood out to you from them.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely I agree. He's probably the most fascinating of these characters. And I'll say that it sort of seems like most of these characters that we're meeting might not be around in episode two because they're not going to make it. Lots of exposure. First, Lots of yeah, exposure. I feel like this group of people, I mean, they are within seconds or minutes, their skin is just bright red. Like, they're not going to survive this. I just feel like, yeah, we're, unless they're going to have some interesting... Time jumps where they go back and forth. I just feel like we might be seeing all new characters going forward, or not all new, but a handful of new characters. I think he's fascinating because, like, everyone else is freaking out, first of all, in the control room. They're all like shaking and nervous and like about to cry and like smoking. He's just like calm, cool, and collected, but. You're right. He's like completely in denial. And I'm trying to figure out if that's his way of being a leader and keeping everybody together. But at the same time, even when they go down into the bunker later on, he's still like, nope, that's not possible. I can't figure out. Like, Still, is he just trying to save his own neck in terms of like you're in the USSR where there's the KGB? I mean, you, if you mess up there, like you could die, you know, you, or you could be put in a, a Russian gulag you know for the rest of your life so is he just trying to protect himself make sure that he's not to blame or does he really not think it's possible for the entire core to have exploded and i get it like there are so many safety measures put in place to prevent such a thing from happening that there are probably 10 other likely things that would happen before this would have occurred and during a safety test of all the things yeah. that's, that's what they were I, doing at this point in time. yes
0: Yeah. That's one of the big kind of wow moments for me in this episode was they were running a safety test. Like how in the world do you have something like this happen with a safety test? And so for him looking at this, there is this sense of ownership and sense of fear that you didn't do it right. Right. And there's this really interesting moment with him, with Dietlov and Formin in the bunker where they're talking to Brukhanov and he is he's saying like the blame is going back and forth. Foreman approved the safety test, but Dietlov was directly supervising it as it ran. And the way that they go back and forth, because Brukinov is asking, okay, tell me what happened, make it quick, because I've got to report this. Dietlov is basically saying, Well, we were performing the safety test that uh that that you, Foreman, gave to us, and this is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. And For me, just kind of claps back at him and he says, yeah, I can see. Yeah, it's probably this or this. I I wouldn't know, though, because I wasn't down there performing the test. And there's like this (laughs) really quiet dig of like, nobody's taking responsibility for this. Yeah. And that freaks me out a little bit because I'm like, someone's to blame. Or maybe a lot of people are to blame. But as we hear in the opening monologue, the tapes, Legasov really is saying, Dietlov is to blame. But the punishment that he ended up getting, like, 10 years in prison or whatever it was, he didn't deserve that. So that's really interesting that you can take the blame for something. You should be responsible and take responsibility for it. But I'm assuming based off of what we're going to see in the next four episodes, it's almost like a little justifiable thing that he did or didn't do. The denial of what's going on for the sake of X. And that's one of the big, big things that we start tapping into in this episode is this idea of how lies can affect the perspective of people. I love at that beginning when he's monologuing and he's saying, it's not the lies themselves. It's the fact that you tell them long enough, that people start believing that they're actually the truth. And right. that's going to be the crux that, I mean, you know, that's going to be the crux of this whole thing. All the characters that we get introduced to of all of them, the majority of them, their M.O. is what's the truth or what are we going to say the truth is. Right. And man, oh, man, that kind of excites me because in our present day, that's a, that's a thing. You know, what's considered misinformation? What's considered real truth? What's considered suppressed truth? Your truth, my truth, all this stuff that we see existed back in 1986 under a regime that we as Americans think was stupid, or the enemy or whatever, where in actuality, we've sort of adopted that as an American people, where it may just be my truth or your truth or the truth of CNN or the truth of Fox News, but the fact is somebody's lying, or maybe they're all lying for a different reason. And so all these things start getting played out as the episode goes on. And what I'm excited about is to see who makes what decisions (laughs) and how does that affect
1: what, what happens next. And I just think that, I think all governments are very similar in the sense in that, yeah, no government wants panic. They mentioned they don't want to create a panic. They don't want, in this case, they were a world power at the time, and just like we are and were at that time too, and they didn't want their nuclear secrets to get out. So all of this stems from secrecy and the ability to control the narrative and to ensure that they are not seen as weak or incapable of being a nuclear power, because that could, be a, that could make them look like a target by the Americans. So it makes sense why they're behaving the way they are. But in those scenes, in those bunker scenes, especially when there's like the big roundtable discussion, all but I think one person is basically in denial about, like, they don't even want to talk about the fact that it's worse than it really is like they're speaking as though it's just this minor incident and they're not even concerned that their families are upstairs or in the town above them and being exposed to this nuclear wind (laughs) that's coming at them they just are all kind of towing the party line to make Mm -hmm. sure that they're they're in sync and on the same page but it's not just those in power it feels like everyone from the firefighters or the fire brigade, as they call them, to the workers, except for those that were deep in the facility who are were were first exposed, none of them really seemed to realize, at least in the first half of the episode, the extent of this disaster. I just don't think they were ever told this was even possible, and they probably weren't. Like it was such a far flung, kind of like the spatial. Challenger exploding, like that was never even something that you prepare for. You prepare for like a failed launch, like, oh, it doesn't, you know, we got to scrub the launch or something. But whoever thought that a shuttle would explode during takeoff? Like that's just, it's not something you can even anticipate for. And those poor firefighters, there's a great shot early on where they pull up and they kind of unfurl their hoses and drag them up. And the camera kind of pans up as one of the fighters looks up. And you just see this sort of absolutely daunting task in front of them. Like, how are you going to use these little hoses and trucks to put out this fire? This is, this is ridiculous. This is so much bigger than anything they've ever had to deal with before. It kind of made me think a little bit like the, kind of a parallel with 9-11 about all the firefighters that had to run into the burning World Trade Center buildings, thinking this is my job. I got to do it. But like, how do you even begin to figure out how you're going to get those people down from those towers and with elevators down. And it just seems like this incredible feat that is unlikely to be successful. And I mean, you would think they would have to know they might be walking into their own deaths, you know, as soon as they pulled up in the fire trucks.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that what you're hitting on is something that I picked up as well, which is this idea of whether it's intentional or not, (laughs) human ignorance is really on full display here. Part of what we see, especially from the firefighters, is I'm a fireman in the mid-1980s, and I'm living in the shadow of this nuclear power plant. I don't know what kind of communication I'm getting from the news. I don't know what kind of education I'm getting in school. As we know from Soviet Russia, I mean, there was shortages of food and resources. So it's the Soviet Union, while perceived maybe by themselves as a superpower with the nuclear weapons— Right. They, from a, from a community, it was a nation that was poor, a nation that after the cold war has taken years and years and years to recover, Mm -hmm. especially with the fall of the USSR and the division of all the countries. So you think about being a fireman and I'm just projecting, I know that there's a fire. I can put it out with water because that's what my job is. I've got my fireman's outfit. I'm going to be protected from that. I'm not thinking about radiation, I'm not thinking about these pieces of, um, what's the, the rock or the, the metal that the guy picks up. Um, I don't remember what it is. Maybe it's graphite. Anyway, it's a piece of metal that comes from the core. He picks it up. And of course we know as future watchers of this event that you don't do that. You don't pick up metal anywhere near a radioactive meltdown or explosion, right? Because what happens is what happened to that dude's hand, which it bubbled up and just got gross and burned yeah. like crazy. So using the fireman as sort of a, an exa- example, they didn't know what they didn't know. right? And it speaks to the fact that just like, like 9-11, like the Challenger explosion, like Princess Diana's death, these things that you think would never happen, things that are just so far-fetched, what we do as human beings is we try to explain those things and give them a narrative, because that's what we love. We love narrative. We love stories. And I think this is where the birth of conspiracy theories live. And I'm sure there have been conspiracy theories about Chernobyl exploded because of a conspiracy that was plotted by the U.S., like an infiltration. In fact, I think I remember reading that after this series came out, the Russian government actually created their own movie to sort of recant the events of this. And they use the CIA operative from America as the linchpin. I can't be for sure. I haven't done all my research, but controlling the narrative, whether it's to control people or whether it's to control your own heart and your own mind is so apparent here. And I think watching these characters who are in denial, who say that could never happen. It's impossible using that sort of Uber, language that is so like nope never in a million years it defeats any possibility of being able to react again no pun intended to what's going on here <laughs> yeah and so, i know i'm not meaning to do this honestly no, i do have just, a script set up i promise it's just you're just that good just stuff. Yeah. i'm just <laughs> <laughs> we need levity in a show like this obviously yeah. But I think it's really amazing how well written and how well set up this episode is because we get the start of that. And as you mentioned, that scene in the bunker with that community of people really reflects two ideologies, this ideology of, hey, we've got to control the narrative. We've got to keep the people in. In fact, I think it was uh, Zarkov, the old man, who stood up, his little cane snapping like three or four times like... I'm here to speak. And he says, essentially, cut off the phone lines, lock down the city, prevent the spread of misinformation. But the message he gives is one about unity and maintaining community. The Soviet Union was a faction, a group built on community and discipline, and that if you weren't part of that, you weren't really Russian. You weren't really one of the people.
1: And everyone everyone plays their part. Everyone has a job in this structure, in this organization. Exactly. Yeah. And
0: and it's probably why, at the beginning, when we see those workers who at first hesitate to go down to the now exploded core, do it anyway. It's right. why you have the engineer that continues to say, no, it exploded. It exploded. Reluctantly goes up to the roof to look down and be exposed to all that fallout, Right. knowing he's going to die. Why? Because... He is part of this community, and that's what you do. You sacrifice for the community for the sake of telling the truth. And I put truth in air quotes because the truth is now ambiguous. The truth is what the strongest people, the people that are not going to be exposed to the radiation, are going to say. And it starts with this guy named Zarkov who says, look, we're going to contain this. And so you have this duality of like, nothing's wrong, but we're not going to tell anybody, and we're not going to let them say anything else. Even though nothing's wrong.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, that whole uh, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to see it, did it really make a sound? You know, same thing. If no one survives this event and no one else outside of this area knows that it happened, did it really happen? You know, one thing I was thinking about is that going back to how they keep saying, you said they keep saying this can't, you know, it's impossible. It just can't happen. It won't happen. I think it goes back to kind of the same mistake that was made with the titanic you know we had Mm -hmm. this the most state-of-the-art epitome of modern technology setting sail on its maiden voyage it was considered unsinkable which is why they didn't even put enough you know lifeboats on it you know to because they didn't think they were needed that was it was a waste and of course they were proved wrong same thing here they don't even have radiation suits they don't carry around dosimeters that can they have these little portable units they can't go above like 3.6 uh was it Rotgens? Rot? How, you, how? i'm not sure how you pronounce that rotkins. Yeah. and i think the top is like a thousand you know so like the, the the amount that they're able to even read on these little portable dosimeters is so insignificant that they were never anticipating there being a need to detect anything more than 3.6 out of more than a thousand It shows how they're sort of their hubris. They just didn't think there was any chance that with the might of the Soviet superpowers and their top scientists that this could ever be anything but just a minor accident that might occur.
0: Yeah, and some of it sounded so far-fetched, even though it's true, the fact that there was one of those meters that could read up to 200 and it did, <laughs> Yeah, but it's locked in a safe. Why do you have it in a safe? That never got explained. And I thought, why in the world do you have that locked away? Even in the hospital during this quiet scene, there's a, a this guy's in labor and delivery. He's talking to a nurse. She's kind of wondering, shouldn't we start expecting folks from this explosion to come? And he's like, yeah, I guess it's, you know, it's a quiet night here. And she has the insight to ask if they have iodine pills, because iodine pills have been known to reduce or prevent you know, radiation sickness. And he says, iodine pills, why would we need iodine pills? And I think that statement, Adam, mm-hmm. is in a nutshell, the attitude, intentional or not, of the people that lived in Pripyat, that yeah. this nuclear power plant was simply another industrial monstrosity that the people there just didn't know enough
1: about and and the people that built it were so confident in this mega structure that they created and built in so many safety protocols so they thought that something of this magnitude could never occur it just couldn't it's not even like they wouldn't have built it the way they built it if that was possible and obviously they yeah. were proved wrong, but yeah, it is it is maddening to see them all basically just continue when, like, visibly, you can just go look with your eyes and see, no, no, this isn't just the roof on fire, which is what they keep saying. Oh, the roof's on fire. The roof's on fire. It's so much bigger than that. A roof on fire? I mean, as you mentioned, there's that great shot in the opening, which I love, by the way, where you're in the apartment and the wife is kind of in the middle of the night getting a, I don't know, a midnight snack or something, and then You just see in the window behind her this, like, bright flash. It just lights up the whole room, and then there's silence. And then, like, a few seconds later, you hear the shockwave, like, the boom hit them and kind of rumbled the apartment that they're in. Instead of like showing it from sort of an omniscient perspective where you're seeing it, like you're getting this beautiful visual effects shot where you're like right next to it and you see it blow up or something. No, we're getting it from a vantage point, kind of like 9-11 with somebody often, you know, in a high rise building uptown looking down and seeing a plane, you know, smash into a building off in the distance saying, what, what just happened? You know, it's like that point of view, that personal point of view that we're seeing it from that perspective. And I like that.
0: Well, it echoes what you said earlier and what I attach to, which is this idea of from an apartment complex that's, what, five kilometers away or something like that? Right. It's no big deal. If it's just a light, boom. That shockwave, right. I think, was the connecting piece for us to the actual accident through the lens of this woman and um, and her husband, Vasily to be able to say, oh, okay, now we're actually connected to it. And so just like we're connected to the event through this mini series. That's how they're connected to it. If in 10 minutes, there's a shockwave that comes and hits my house, I'm going to be connected to whatever just happened. A few weeks right. ago, we had, it was actually on Halloween night. We had an incident two streets away where there was an event that was taking place with a guy who refused to come out and there apparently were guns. We were told to evacuate <laughs> mm. two streets away. Here was the thought. Of social media people, including ourselves. We were inconvenienced. We were annoyed that the police were not telling us when we could come home. We right. didn't want to have to stay at my parents' house all night because we had to go to work and school the next day. That kind of individualism, hey, it's yes. not affecting me directly, so why should I care? But when they first announced it, I was like, is there a gas leak? Is something going to explode? And I'm like, this is Chernobyl before I've even seen Chernobyl. Like, it's gonna. <laughs> what's yeah. happening here? Yeah. But that attitude lives in this first episode fully where if you're not being directly affected by it, you're probably going to look at it not only as something that doesn't affect you, but as something that you can actually be entertained by. And that scene on the bridge, probably the most vivid scene in the entire episode Mm -hmm. is beautifully tragic where you have this group of people looking at this, what they call beautiful event happening
1: they're drinking and eating snacks, you know, almost Babies, like you're there's a at a movie. baby in a carriage. Oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. The kids are laughing and dancing and yeah, mm-hmm. it's horrible. And you, see the, and you
0: see the fallout and you see the kids playing in it. And I'm like, all of you people are dead. Do you yeah. not know that?
1: No, And they don't. That's, that's the point. Yeah, they're playing in it like they're in a snowstorm or something. And, and yet they have no idea that, you know, it's just a matter of time. Again, I think this comes down to the fact that nobody was educated. Even like you said, that doctor delivering babies in the hospital, they weren't prepared for this. Like, oh, yeah, this is the closest hospital to a nuclear power plant. And, you know, if something happens, here's a room with some supplies that you're going to (laughs) need, you know, to help these people if they come in with radiation burns or whatever. It's like there was no preparation, there was no education, no information, no preventative tools or equipment or hazmat suits whatever nothing that we've at least seen yet to right enable them to successfully combat this disaster i mean clearly if they knew what they were doing all those firemen would be coming in with radiation suits with their hoses i mean to protect themselves but they just went in you know guns blazing (laughs) just like come on guys let's get in there it's so tragic to see because of what we know because we i mean clearly at the at that moment These people don't know what's going on. So you can't really blame, especially the townspeople, because they just don't, they weren't told anything could ever happen. They just think it's a power plant, you know? Oh, there's a fire. Oh, yeah, they can put out a fire with water, like you said earlier. Like, no big deal. It's happened before, I'm sure. You know, small little incidents, and that's all you do. You take care of it. Yeah, it's not willful ignorance. No. It's... Unfortunate
0: ignorance, and the last scene absolutely sort of solidifies that. Where it's the next day, and kids are going to school, and that last shot of the bird falling, just giving sort of foreshadowing, like this is this is going to be the town. Knowing what we know, I think it's going to be interesting to sort of how empathetic are we going to (laughs) feel this idea of all those workers that got exposed to the radiation? Are they pretty much dead? What I was reading about is I know that there's been some Conflicting information about how many people actually died because radiation poisoning can happen right. over the course it's of not, several years. Right.
1: And, or or it could be something someone deals with for decades, you know, in terms right. of like their, you know, their lifespan may have been shortened, but who knows what ultimately killed them. It could have been yeah. a secondary condition. Yeah. The creator,
0: <laughs> he made a comment. He said, most of them probably don't have a thyroid. That's what we know for sure. Right. Most <laughs> right. of them don't have a thyroid. But I think I read about 30 people actually were listed as dying directly as a result, either being completely exposed directly to it. It's frustrating for my heart because I'm like, oh, only 30 people. No, not only 30 people. But for me, I'm looking at that number and I'm thinking I'm counting like the number of people on the bridge and the people in the plant. And I'm like, are those the 30 people? What's going to happen? That's kind of the interesting thing about this miniseries is I don't know how long this Event is going to be carried out if we're going to go 15 years into the future, if we're going to go 15 days into the future. Obviously, the farthest we've gone is two years later when Legasov commits suicide. But I do wonder how many people and how is this going to affect folks afterwards? So there's a lot of questions that I have, but I'm looking forward to just sort of being immersed in this because I think what it's doing effectively is it's giving the sense of what really happened as opposed to a sensationalized depiction of the event. Like right. And I think it starts with that subtle introduction of the explosion, not the setup, not the alarms going off and like something in the in the core just goes white. You know, it's it's very yeah. much a third person point of view of I don't know what's happening. And I'm, I'm sort of glad yeah, to we're be in one that of because, those
1: people in the town in yes. a way where, we we're, yeah. where we know almost as much as they do, you know, yes, we see a few different points of view, different characters and what they're experiencing. But ultimately, especially in the beginning, we don't know much more than anyone else. Everyone's walking out of their apartments, saying, what was that? Oh, you know, and they're, you know, they're past, they're gossiping, right? Sharing, oh, I think I, so-and-so heard there was a, a roof fire or this and that. And two of those people I wanted to bring out attention to the two guys. I don't know their names. The two workers that were in the control room that went down into like the basement to turn on the water valves and um, who I assume don't make it. I'm sure they, they were looking and they were in pretty bad shape towards the end of the episode. But there's a funny, there's a not funny, it's interesting moment that made me wonder something. Uh, one of them says to the other, I'm so sorry. And he the other says, there's nothing to be sorry for. We did nothing wrong. And the other guy says, but we did. And I was like, what does that mean? Does he Mm -hmm. know something about the test that, you know, the safety test that they were doing? Did they do something? Did they cut a corner? Did they make a mistake that he's aware of? Or did they all know that this was a possibility and didn't prepare for it properly? You know what I mean? Like, there's something more to that conversation. And that's the other thing, because all these characters died. This is where I, I'm assuming we're getting a little bit of just creative license about what happened to all these people, all these workers that were right there in the plant when this happened. Because unless one of them made it out and told the story, and again, maybe one or two did, a lot of the things that we see here, these all these poor men just, you know, died within a number of hours. You know, inside, yeah. they weren't. Yeah. know taken out and taken to a hospital yeah well
0: well i guess we'll find out within the confines of these five episodes yeah what happens and what happened (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah well i don't have anything else do you have anything you want to tack on before we finish
1: up uh the the only thing i want to just say yeah it it ends with that really really great I, i mean it doesn't officially end with this right before that bird falling down we get that great phone conversation where jared harris who um we see in the beginning, the one that commits suicide gets a phone call. And I think it's Stellan Skarsgård's character on the phone. I could recognize his, I think it's Swedish accent that he has. Uh, and they have a, a really great conversation where you, you can tell there's going to be a lot going on between these, these two characters going forward. By the way, I think Jared Harris is a fantastic underrated actor. He was in Mad Men. He was in a show. Oh, here's another connection to Halt and Catch Fire. He was in the Apple TV Plus show Foundation, which also stars Ah, Lee Pace. So they're both in that show together. And so, yeah, so we're following Lee Pace and Jared Harris. But yeah, I I just thought that that phone call conversation was, to me, kind of the real ending of the story, whereas the little bird falling was kind of like the stinger at the end where it's like, oh, here's... Here's what's gonna happen next, you know the town, and I wasn't <laughs> sure if that was the same town or if that was like another town farther out. It wasn't clear to me if like how far is this radiation gonna spread? Like what's the what's the sort of, what you know if you're downwind, uh, yeah, yeah of of that of that fallout. I, I would think it's focused on Pripyat specifically because that's the town that was evacuated the most closely. Yeah, in. it was right kind of built up to support kind of like you were saying about, you know, the six flags and how it, if it closes it, it can destroy the community if everybody if people work at that. If that's their that one of the big employers of that community. This is probably the main employer for this small town. They're, they're the most affected. Well,
0: that's going to do it for us on this edition of AOS. Adam, what is coming up next?
1: Episode 2 of 5 is entitled Please Remain Calm, which is a very it makes sense after what we've just learned about <laughs> yeah. the direction that the the powers that be want to take this disaster. They want everyone to remain calm, and I and we didn't bring it up, but they talked about bringing in like two to three thousand police officer, like secret police, to kind of control the people. So those poor guys too are gonna die. <laughs> I just feel like they're bringing in more people essentially yeah. to get exposed, unfortunately. But yeah. last thing I'll say is I was looking this up every episode is directed by johan rank and written by craig Mason, which uh which i think is interesting because as we've discussed in some of the other shows they have different writers they have different directors they all kind of add their own you know creative flair potentially this is essentially five episodes all made by the same people you know so it's more like a really long movie like a five hour mm-hmm. movie than it is yeah. i would say a television series in that sense because it's got sort of a single team even though shows do have show runners they they do still outsource as we've discussed work to other writers and directors where this is clearly a sort of a single vision that's being carried through all the way
0: yeah all right, well, that's uh, that's going to do it for us. Thank you guys for tuning in as always. I'm Patch, he's Adam, and we are out of here.